This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post Center act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take on your etiquette questions on awkward gift givebacks, how to RSVP when a written reply is requested, whether or not you can charge for your dinner party, and a couple who might be putting practicality above consideration when it comes to shower gifts. All that plus your feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript segment from Laura Claridge's biography on Emily Post. Coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. Dan, we had a really fun thing happen yesterday. We had an audience member with a very special talent, very special interest, come and visit us. Tell us about it. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to start off by thanking Jennifer Bacala for coming and visiting us at the Emily Post Institute. She is a professional genealogist whose specialty is writing genealogies that involve the stories of the people involved. So she's both a researcher of family histories and family trees, but her particular talent in this field is Connecting stories, connecting human stories to the histories, the family trees that she helps develop and investigate. So very anecdotal researcher. Absolutely. And a big congratulations to her. She's currently waiting for her first book to come out. Can't wait to tell you all about it when it's available. But she visited us at the Emily Post Institute to get to know Lizzie and I just a little bit better and to take a look at some of the archive material that we have. She had noticed that we had taken down a blank web page on our website that had promised a family tree to come soon at some point. <laughs> and we'd been promising that it was coming soon for long enough that I started to feel a little awkward about it and had taken down the promise until we were actually able to deliver. And she had reached out to us and said, you know, did, did you take that page down because you no longer have interest in it or just because you don't have time and yeah. attention to spend on it right now? And if that's the case, maybe I could help bring some attention back to that, that area of your site and we could get it going again. And I cannot wait to do this because our family tree is not incredibly complicated. In fact, the, the, <laughs> the tree between Emily and us, Emily was Lizzie and my great, great grandmother. And the the line of descent is pretty clear. It was a single son with a single son down to our grandfather. So that's what we call Emily Generation 1, her son Generation 2, our grandfather Gen 3. She was even a single too. So, I mean, real direct line here. <laughs> Absolutely. And then it branches a little bit. Yep. The Gen 4 had four siblings. So then our generation, Gen 5, there's more cousins. Yeah. And if you want to know more, take a look at the family tree page as it emerges over the coming weeks. But... That's Jen's one through five, but she also taught me that when you start going above what you would maybe call your prime generation, you yeah. start labeling with the alphabet. 
Oh, okay. So we're hoping to crawl back up through the family tree and identify some A's, some maybe oh, M's, so like maybe some Z's. Emily's Who knows? father would be A, as exactly. we refer to this, as opposed to like gen negative one or something like that because you're going the opposite way. I get it. Okay. What I loved was that she included a visual that made so much sense for me because I always thought – I was looking at this this page in my head and thinking of a, a family tree that always starts with one person. And I say, how do you pick where it starts? Because mm-hmm. there's cool people above Emily, too. And yet at the same time, the brand and the, you know, the etiquette is all known from Emily down. And Jennifer gave us this wonderful visual of an hourglass where you have Emily in the middle at that most narrow point and then going up above her are all the generations that came above that have some really cool and interesting people in them. And then below, of course, is the family that's carried on the legacy and I think that that is so cool and it it allows for my head the visual you know as I I say this to Dan all the time I'm a visual learner Dan I need to see what we're talking about and this put it in place in my head as to how to think about it so for your two podcast hosts this was definitely a a geek geek out out moment (laughs) where our worlds collided our podcast world that we love and adore so much and a really interested and invested podcast listener you've heard some of Jennifer's questions on the show met our interest in tradition and family and a family business. It gave me an excuse to call Anna Post, Lizzie's sister, (laughs) and ask about the genealogical research she had done years ago. It's inspired a digging back into the archive to search for a particular book that apparently traces the Post name back through the Norman conquest to the Eastern Germany or Northern Germany. long ago. (laughs) And I'm really curious to see where this particular research project goes. I will be excited to share that information with all of you. And we wanted to thank Jennifer and just mention this on the show because it really all began with this podcast and a connection that started over the airwaves. Speaking of that connection, let's connect to some of our listeners and get to their questions. Let's do it. Awesome etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom, and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. 
That's StoryWorth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners, it's manners with an S, to save $10 on your first purchase. And now, back to our show. Awesome Etiquette is all about answering your questions on how to behave. If you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette so that we know you want it on the show. Our first question is about an awkward gift give back. And let me tell you, this is awkward, but I enjoy this question a lot. There's some delicious stuff in here. Dear Lizzie and Dan, I'm a big fan of your podcast. I especially love all of the conversation surrounding thank you notes. We are so glad to hear that because I figured everyone would never want to hear the phrase again after the last two months. Recently, I had an awkward gift give back situation. I gave my cousin a sweater for Christmas this year that apparently didn't work out for her since it was in a bag of clothes she cleaned out of her closet and gave to me this weekend. The sweater still had the tags on it, and being the receipt hoarder that I am, I returned the sweater for store credit. While I believe she intended to get rid of the sweater, I don't think she realized she gave me back my gift. I think she would be mortified if she realized this. I'm inclined to keep the store credit in order to avoid the awkwardness of calling out her mistake, and also because my feelings are a little hurt, which is silly because I have received gifts that I can't wait to cycle out. However, keeping the store credit doesn't quite feel right since this was intended to be a gift. What is a tactful way to give my cousin the store credit? Again, I love the podcast. It brightens my Monday. Thanks, Shelby. Oh, Shelby, you have brightened our day just a little (laughs) bit with your question. This is so much fun. It's a bit of a new twist on an awkward situation because there is this added benefit, this added bonus (laughs) that you've got that receipt in hand and the store credit is right there and so available to you. And it's definitely a situation where I appreciate your internal compass trying to uh, hold you accountable. We oftentimes encourage people to listen to that little discretionary voice that pops up and I can hear that little discretionary voice popping up in your mind. I love that Shelby identifies that she's received gifts that she couldn't wait to cycle out. And I think it really puts a lot of perspective on the situation that she's admitted she feels a little bit hurt. But at the same time, she totally knows how this could happen. There, This does happen. Sometimes you just don't hit the mark and the person isn't going to go and return it or anything. But I, I like the fact that she's recognizing how this situation might have come about. And she doesn't seem to be too offended, even though she's a little, a little miffed, a little. It's pretty clear that this isn't intentional. Yeah, I feel so. I feel like that. And I agree that this cousin would probably be mortified Yeah, if they realized that they had done this, that most of us want to receive a gift well and right. giving someone else the credit of assuming that they would want to receive a gift well and that they would feel awkward if they knew that they had communicated that it hadn't been um, received quite as well as they would have hoped. No. Too that you know, as we're thinking about like how we get to an answer in this question, I think one of the things that pops into my mind is that the cousin had every chance to go and exchange this. Like that, that was something that she totally could have done. And instead, you know, she's even folding up the sweater. I'm guessing she noticed there were tags on it, you know, and clearly she'd forgotten the part about who had given it to her. But I do think that she never took it upon herself to do so. You know, she never took it upon herself to claim that store credit, get the gift that she really wanted and say thank you for it. Because of that, I think we can drive to the advice and say, Yahtzee, you're in good shape here. (laughs) 
Um, sometimes we're we're lucky. We find money on the street. Uh, lottery ticket scratches off, and guess what? You're a winner. And this is one of those cases where I think you get a little bonus here, and you you get to feel good about being a good friend, about being a good gift giver, about not pointing out your cousin's mistake or error in this situation. Sometimes the best etiquette is to let something slide. There is something a little classy. Oh yeah, about that. Totally. At certain times, usually the classy nature of letting something slide <laughs> comes when you take a bit of a hit yourself in some way. And in this case, you're kind of taking that hit on your emotional side, but in the material world, you might gain a little benefit or advantage. I was So I say enjoy that material benefit and advantage. It's going to come along with taking that emotional hit. And it is the classy choice, and it's good for your relationship. And I say moving forward to next year, give her a gift with the gifts receipt and let her know when you give her the gift that if it isn't quite right, you know, if the style or the fit's a little off, you'd be happy to have her return and exchange it for something that does work. Do that encouragement. That way she feels like she has the permission to go and get something next time. And maybe that bag of clothes won't won't have an item that you had given to her previous Christmas in it when she cleans out her closet again next spring. Shelby, we really hope that advice helps you out and um, that you enjoy your store credit and get something truly awesome. This next question is about RSVP, but how? Hello there. I've been invited to an afternoon tea, and the invite I received in the mail said to RSVP by mail. This invite did not include a return envelope. I was wondering if there is a certain protocol on how to respond. Do I use a blank note card? Thanks for the help. Danielle. I was so excited when Danielle wrote us this question because this is an etiquette geek out for me. I thought I I was so um, amazed that that a someone has been issued an invitation that um, they have to respond in written form to. When does that ever happen? I don't think I've ever had that happen. I can't wait to give the advice later. But first, Dan, what was your thought when you read this question? Well, my first thought was to something that you taught me about the history of wedding etiquette, which is that this used to be the absolute standard and that was the standard for the most formal invitation you were likely to receive, the invitation to a wedding, and that you were supposed to respond. And the only indication on the the invitation that you would receive that you were supposed to respond would be a, a, sometimes just the initials RSVP, and you were meant to know what to do. And that was to write out a response. And it was our grandmother in the 1970s who acknowledged the changing tradition when People started to include the reply envelope and card to make it easier for people to RSVP. And it was happening so much that she had to acknowledge that there was a new tradition that was emerging and say these are okay to use. It's so funny because when you were, were first talking about this rationale, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, like before in Emily's day, you first of all, telephones were really expensive, so not everyone had one in their home. And so you weren't telephoning invites in or saying RSVP to a phone number, please. You were automatically going to be writing a handwritten response because they didn't have text messages. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have anything that was going to allow you to respond in all these multiple forms that we have today. And, of course, letter writing has fallen off of our favor a bit or out of favor a bit. It's still important. We still advocate for it. But at the same time, it's not something that we're all used to doing in terms of a reply to an invitation that's not a wedding. And I love that Dan brings up that our grandmother, Mud, Elizabeth, that she she changed that in the 1970s. And I will just add to all of Dan's uh, good history and storytelling there. She changed that begrudgingly. She did not want to change this. This was 
was something she was resistant to because she thought that you were receiving the highest form of invitation, which was to come to someone's major life event. And it deserved the handwritten reply. And you know what? Hosts were getting frustrated because not enough people were taking the time to do that reply. So they were having to follow up all the time. So you get the invention of the reply card. However, many of us today have only ever received an invitation that requires a written reply with a reply card for a wedding invitation. So most of us, I don't think I have ever received an invitation that asked for a written reply that wasn't to an event that would require a reply card. And so our dear listener, Danielle, is now in this position where she's like, hey, every time I've gotten this, there's been a pre-self-addressed stamped envelope with it. What gives? And the truth is, is that what gives is that you are supposed to use your own stationery to write this reply. And that is what you're going to do. Dan and I have two kind of different um, abilities with this, I would say. Dan, you actually invested in some really beautiful stationery. I did. I was teaching our business etiquette seminars, and I was giving the advice rather frequently that you might think of having some personal stationery as part of your professional wardrobe. And I'd been giving this advice enough that I really started to internalize it and think about <laughs> it myself and say to myself, you know, I should have some social stationery. I should have some personal stationery, something with my name, in my case, engraved. And, it's and beautiful. It's very on beautiful. It. And yeah. Um, There's a whole range of options that you can choose when you're thinking about developing a a set of social stationery. And it can be as simple as purchasing some basic correspondence cards from your local stationery. You can get them online. That's what I do. (laughs) You can talk to uh, a stationery store about getting an engraved plate with your name and getting engraved stationery. It's a nice option. It's something definitely to think about. But there's also um, letterpress type stationery that's a little less expensive. You can go with a thermographic printing option. You can go with a standard printing option. You can print your own on the copy machine at your workplace. There's a whole range <laughs> of options that. <laughs> from from sort of the most formal and uh, oftentimes most expensive option to something that's really quite affordable, just a simple stack of social cards that you could pick up either even online or your local or store. Or even handmade. You could hand make these if you're really crafty and that's the that's a talent that you have and a, and a skill that you want to use. You could absolutely do it. There is nothing that says this stationery has to be expensive. There's nothing that says it has to be formal. But what I do think that, Danielle, I would advise you to do is seek out whatever stationery fits your budget and your style, and then write a short note to your host. Dear Kate, thank you for inviting me to your afternoon tea. I happily accept your invitation and look forward to tea on Saturday, April 15th at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Best wishes till then, Danielle. It's very simple, but I love the fact that your host has actually engaged you in this wonderful etiquette tradition. And I'm I'm excited for your experience. I know it's not going to be revolutionary or anything, but I just think it's cool that this is one of those boxes you can check off. Hey, I can respond to written RSVP requests. You it's know? nice. And it's, it's not a thank you card. Nope, not a thank you it's card. It's not a, a holiday card. or it, it's, it's something that you would do on a piece of stationery that um, – fits neatly in a nice little envelope and just communicates whatever thought you want to express in that moment. In this particular case, I would love to attend your event. I was even thinking about adding a little mention on that note of what a treat to be asked to reply via mail. <laughs> via mail right? You can even even acknowledge that. There, there, there are um, some good guidelines. You definitely want to include the event that you're replying to, that you intend to go very clearly. 
But you if can you also, do intend to go, if you decline, that's different. <laughs> that's a really good point. Sorry, the, the RSVP isn't just go. for when you're going to go to the event. In yeah. fact, we often talk about the most difficult thing for a host to manage is a question mark on the guest list. You yeah. can also RSVP. I thank you so much for the invitation. I'm sorry, I will not be able to attend. Yes, absolutely. Danielle, either way, we think that you are in good stead by sending this note, and we um, are excited for you should you attend this afternoon tea. This sounds like a lovely, slightly formal event, and I I think it's really cool. (laughs) I do. She insists that if they don't learn the etiquette of attending teas, they can never enjoy them. And if they never go to teas, they will be missing a very enjoyable way of meeting friends, making new ones. The etiquette is easy to learn if they will just pay a little attention. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our next question is one that I I was surprised at what I found myself writing for an answer, but I think it's all going to work out. But I'm hoping we surprise you all, too. To charge or not. Hello, Lizzie and Daniel. I have a dinner party problem. I am an avid home chef and love to host friends for dinner parties. In the past, my husband and I have been able to foot the bill for some pretty nice dinner parties. However, finances have changed and we can't afford to host like we have in the past. I still need an outlet for my culinary adventures, though, and I am asked frequently by friends, when will I host again, and get comments saying they wish I would cook certain meals again. With Cinco de Mayo being on a Friday this year and Mexican food being my specialty, I have a complete menu from appetizers, drinks, main course, and dessert ready to go. I am feeling the need to host a Cinco de Mayo party. Would it be inappropriate to ask friends to contribute $20 per family towards the meal? This wouldn't be coming out of the blue as a few in our circle have talked with us about a monthly dinner party with me doing the cooking and or assisting with instructions since I have taught classes and everyone else chipping in towards the cost since we are all in a similar income bracket. Every social gathering in our circle ends up being potluck with everyone bringing food. So is asking for money instead of food all that different or is it tacky? Or should I let people know what food items they can bring to contribute to the meal since that is sort of what's done anyway when it's potluck style? Or should we not host it all if we can't afford it or limit it to one or two families? How do I do that without leaving our good friends out? We are only looking at inviting four families as it is to the Cinco de Mayo party, but they all have three to four times the children that we do, so... 
it adds up pretty quickly. Any advice you have is appreciated. Thank you so much for hosting such a lovely podcast. Listening to your podcast every Monday morning is the perfect way to start my week. Thank you to charge or not. It's such a good question. It's a great question. And it falls into that category for me of favorite questions that it's asking about something that's coming in the future. So it's showing forethought. This is somebody who's really thinking ahead. They're wanting to do things well. I also love the framing of is it inappropriate to ask fundamentally guests to help pay for the meal that I'm hoping to serve. And (laughs) there is a real awareness in that question of the fact that it is not. So typical, so usual, maybe from the most formal perspective of hosting, the host, the person who's doing the inviting, usually anticipates paying for the meal. If that's out at a restaurant, the host is going to be planning to pick up the bill. If the host is hosting at home, they're most likely going to be providing the food and drink, and that's going to be part of their expenses for the event. And isn't it fascinating how our listener is totally right? We ask people to do potlucks and contribute to a meal that way all the time. And yet when we think of the idea of asking them to just bring cash to contribute to that meal, that feels somehow wrong. And you can hear it in her question that she's struggling with it. Like, I know this isn't right, but if we've all talked about it, if this has happened, if that has happened, like, is that then okay? So that's the normal appropriate manners answer. At the same time, there are some conditions here. There's there is a broader situation that makes the answer a little more nuanced. Absolutely. I think personally, and this is where I surprised myself when I got through reading this. I said, no, wait a second. Actually, that doesn't sound too bad. I like the fact that given that um, To Charge or Not's group has already talked about doing a structure like this. I think that they're in good territory to implement this with people that they've talked to about saying, you know, clearly our our listeners' friends really love her cooking and have even asked for specific dishes. So we're talking about a chef who a home chef who people love. They're probably more excited sometimes to eat her food than their own. And so this actually might really work to have people contribute cash to the meal so that everyone gets our listeners' wonderful cooking that they also crave. But also still it doesn't break the bank and everyone really understands what what territory we're in about contributing. And because our listener has talked with people about this and that this has been an idea floated, I think it's going to be okay to act on it. That was the detail that jumped out at me also. The fact that people had already inquired about whether or not they could chip in or contribute, that they appreciated that the the nature, style, sort of level of care or sophistication or quality of the menu had already made them maybe even think to themselves or wonder to themselves if this is going to be sustainable and wanted to contribute to, to keep it happening, to participate in some way. And practicality really, as we often say, being the heart of good etiquette, I think that it's worth considering those offers, taking them seriously, and factoring that into how you might approach this situation. So I think what we want to advise our listener to do is to do good work before the actual invitation is issued. I would make sure that with these four families that you're thinking of inviting, that you've ahead of time, before you even issue the invitation, revisit this idea with them and say, hey, we had all talked about this at one point. I'm wondering if this is, if we actually said we were going to do this, if people would still feel comfortable with 
with it. And that way you're getting the buy-in before the invitation is issued. And you're only going to be inviting people with whom you've had this conversation. So it's not a surprise. It's not awkward. It's not feeling like they're put upon because they've already given you their buy-in. And then, depending how you choose to send out your invite, I would make it clear in that invite that you're you're invoking this thing you've talked about. You're saying, "Hey, we've all talked about doing a party this way and and now we're going to do it." Like this we want to we want to jump on the and they all say that yes, that would be totally okay. So then you say, "Okay, great. I will get back to you with with an invite picking a night and we're going to do this thing." And then you can simply issue your invitation. And I think when you issue the invitation, you can say, "So we've planned a menu and just like we had discussed, um, if you'd be willing to bring your your $20 to contribute, that would be amazing. And you set the price, you set the time, you set the event and everything. I think your guests are going to feel comfortable with this because they already said they would. <laughs> Some other thoughts that occur yeah. to me that I would love to share here are that I think that when you're having that pre-talk, one of the things that you keep in mind for yourself is that this isn't something where you're trying to make money. Oh, yeah. That you're talking about cost sharing. And I think cost sharing is a really good language to introduce in that discussion to keep people really aware that you're not trying to start a business where you're catering or hosting dinners. This isn't a pop-up restaurant situation. (laughs) This really is friends all contributing so the meal happens. One of the little caution flags that came up in my mind was your personal excitement about the Cinco de Mayo meal. That if this really is your passion project, you don't want to necessarily – make your passion project everyone's passion project. And there might be some ways to solicit suggestions from your audience about oh. what kinds of meals they might like to do. I Maybe you, you start with the Cinco de Mayo party, but you've also broadened the discussion a little bit so that you're asking about Maybe it's a boiled dinner for St. Patrick's Day or I don't I don't know because I'm not as good a wow, chef as so you are. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just totally kidding. I like your idea about not dictating what this party will be, but asking, you know, in your invite, in your in your pre-work, you could say, so would you guys think about doing a Cinco de Mayo party this way? You could even say, like, I've got in my head, a, you know, Mexican food is where my specialty lies. I would love to to kick this off. With the Cinco de Mayo party, would you guys be down? I like that. And okay. I would also add to that, one of the things that was mentioned before by the group was the possibility of a lesson. And I think that I, I would that. come back to that idea also. I would say, and I would love to invite anyone to come an hour, hour and a half early to cook with me. Help and prep, yeah. make it both an opportunity to get some help prepping, but also a chance to share some of that knowledge that clearly is at the center of this event that you're really thinking about crafting. So to charge or not, we think that it's not so much uh, black and white territory here, that there's some gray area if handled with tact and care. And we think that given the group of friends you're doing this with, that you're in good territory to remind them of this idea, discuss it further, and then move forward with an invitation and get back to hosting these fabulous dinner parties that you and your friends so love. Our next question is a bit of an oxymoron. It's about a... (laughs) A shower without gifts. To whom it may concern, a friend is facing this dilemma. She's in her late 20s, getting married this summer. Her family lives in the Midwest. She and her fiancé will be living on the West Coast. The bride plans to move in with her fiancé a few months before the wedding, but has decided to have the wedding shower and wedding at home in the Midwest. All this said, she and her fiancé are wondering the social acceptability of asking wedding shower guests to ship gifts to their West Coast apartment rather than bringing them to the Midwest shower. 
they would prefer not to incur the large expense of shipping all the gifts, and with the ease of online ordering, they believe it won't inconvenience guests. However, the bride worries that this will offend or upset older family members who would traditionally expect the bride to open physical gifts at her shower. What do you advise? Oh, anonymous asker. I think um, the first first thing I want to just – the thought that pops to my head is that a wedding shower is an entire party about gifts. I mean the point is to give shower gifts and shower. Shower one yeah, with gifts. Exactly. You got it. And so um, to have a party without gifts but still making the point of the party about gifts, meaning we're not saying shower us with love and your presence as opposed to your presence – it strikes me as not comfortable territory, that this has red flags, I would say. I don't want to entirely rule it out because I've seen some creative things done. But my thought is that this isn't really the way you want to go. I have seen things where people, for instance, do a gift card shower. But the way I saw this organized was really great because every gift card was really connected to a specific gift. So rather than use the regular registry, they did a uh, kind of like a host's registry that the host managed. And what she did was she and the bride went through and selected a bunch of uh, gifts from stores that were going to be in the location the bride and groom were moving to. And they did range of prices and items and things. And guests could then select a gift and then go purchase a gift card for the store in the amount that would then cover the gift. And so when you when they presented the bride with each card, the bride knew what gift was intended for the gift card. And I really liked that because it gave the bride something to react to other than just a price. It was, oh my gosh, I can't wait to use this to purchase that new toaster oven or I can't wait to use this to purchase those sheets or whatever it is. And so there was that there was that exchange and excitement that happened even though the technical gift being opened was a gift card. But I thought that was a really good structure and the bride and groom made sure to use those gift cards in accordance with the gifts that they were meant to be purchased for. They didn't pull them all together and just buy a flat screen TV or something like that. That was my first thought. It just reminded me of this situation that I had seen executed well before which was a little different. No Thank you for sharing because okay, sorry, I know that was long. No, but. my first thought was very similar to yours that I it just didn't feel quite right to me. Yeah. That the the nature of a, a shower is so often that experience of sitting around with everyone together and there is this this sort of excitement that builds around the opening of the gifts and the showering of that expectant couple or mother with with presents. And it really is it's fun when it's done well, and it can be something that guests are really looking forward to, that they really want to participate in and think of as an essential part of that experience. I think, too, that you could do this even without the gift card. Okay, what if they did the thing they want to do where they're asking people to send gifts to the, the new home location? And so the gifts aren't coming to the party, but instead guests brought a picture of the item, like printed out a picture. Is that not – what do you think? I'm just – this is idea in my head riffing. Like what do you think about that? Does that start to strike the right note or the wrong note? I think it's a version of that gift card shower okay. that you're talking about. And I appreciate the rationale in this question, the thinking of the convenience that for many people who are ordering these gifts online, it doesn't matter to them a whole lot whether they have it shipped here or there. Right. 
And I appreciate that thinking, wanted to balance it with the thought of how much fun the party experience can be when there's True. that gift opening that happens. And I, I like that You've middle. You've been through that a couple times now between baby and wedding. So you understand the experience of it. Yeah. And really appreciated spending that time yeah. with friends and family. And for, for me, it was a Jack and Jill shower where there were uncles present who had yeah. never been to something <laughs> like that before and just got taken away by the whole <laughs> event. Uh, it was really nice. It was fun. I, uh, a good guy friend of mine we've heard I've mentioned on this show before gave us little um, Guns N' Roses sweet child of mine onesies and <laughs> so o- opening that was it was such a different shower present but the, the experience of opening the present and seeing the items was such a big part of the event and, and I wouldn't want to deny those traditionalists who have had that experience look forward to it look forward to providing it for someone that experience so I like but I like the new options because there was it was also true at the showers I was attending recently where there were many gifts that were open and had Amazon gift cards in them right <laughs> and those have been some awesome presents because now you've got Amazon gift card credit and boy when the diaper order comes and she's bigger than just a newborn now you can get the diapers that fit well and right, right. Um, I, I like the idea of having some middle ground territory where there's room for that where maybe even you have a host who's spreading via word of mouth the possibility or option for a gift card shower or um, even a particular gift that's from a registry in a store in the town where the couple's going to be living. But I do like the idea of having something to open in the presence of people that day. I would never deny someone who wanted to bring a gift, bringing a gift. Right. So that if that really mattered to somebody, there was room for all of this experience to happen because I do think there is something on the host and here the couple that's receiving the gift to receive well. Yes. And to assume some of that cost, some of the difficulty of shipping the gifts. Some people are going to hand make you gifts. Things. They're not going to be things that you can so, purchase online. So to tell those people, could you please ship this to where I'm going to be? Later. Really does start to cross that territory that I think feels a little rude. Okay, so you just said something that it's what comes to my mind when an invitation or a party, when you start to try to focus on coordination that makes it easy for the guest of honor or the host, but maybe makes things a little awkward for the guests, we start to lose the focus of the party. Now, the focus of a shower is to shower the couple with gifts, and we definitely want to do that in a way that really works for the couple. But when the invitation then starts coming with a lot of instruction that really is about logistical stuff, it starts to make the logistics seem more important than the actual event itself. And I think that's exactly what Dan was just getting at. And it does start to feel a little on the rude side when you're trying to pre-manage how to make this easier for the couple when... It's the couple who's moving to the place on the West Coast, and you're not punishing them for that. But this is one of the the logistical aspects of moving that they need to deal with. And I don't think you put that burden on your guests who are giving you gifts for celebrating a really special time in your life. That is, that's kind of where we come from with our advice. So we have kind of two thoughts on the matter. And one is that you just don't burden your guests with your own logistical issues and transform the nature of the type of party you're inviting them to. That would be our no, sorry, please don't go this route. You really might cause offense. And on top of it, the focus doesn't seem to be in the right place with this one, I'll be honest. However, 
there's another option to employ this funky twist like the party I had imagined or, or the, the, the questions I was asking Dan about. Could you just have people bring pictures of the items if we really have to go this territory of shipping everything to the West Coast instead? And I think that what you want to do if you go that route is make sure that you're keeping the focus uh, of your invitation on inviting the guest, not explaining this funky twist. You have the host explain the funky twist when RSVPs take place. And that's when the host can let the guests know what the deal is with this party. But keep that invitation to, we're having a shower. It's going to be in the Midwest. Of course, you're going to use more more specific language than that. But we would like to invite you. Keep all that focus there. And then have the host communicate to guests that, hey, so a little bit funky twist on this one. We The couple is totally fine if you bring a gift to the party. But if anyone would wish to send it to their future home, they would be so grateful for that. And you could just bring a picture of the item to the party so that they can be excited and thank you in person. That would be one potential way of handling it. And that is definitely the host's job, to do the inviting well. They are going to be your perfect ally if you do decide to employ said funky twist. We really hope you enjoy this shower, however it ends up working out, and that it's a a great hit for the new couple. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates and comments. We want to know how how our advice is doing or if you have a special twist that makes something easier, better, different, or maybe it was not the right thing to do and you want to share that too. We want to hear about it. Please write in to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or you can leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette so we know you want your question on the show. Each week, we like to hear your thoughts about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. We heard from Maya a few weeks back, who had thoughts on our shoes on versus shoes off when entering someone's home question from episode 129. I was calling in reference to a topic discussed in episode 129 about the shoeless household policy. It was the first time I ever made a face while I was listening to your advice, so I thought it was worth calling to share a different perspective. I am totally the friend the writer inner was talking about. I am a new parent to a spunky and curious nine-month-old who puts everything in his mouth. Quite literally the other day, I noticed him gnawing on something while I was uh, at my office and had him on the floor of my conference room, which at first glance I had dubbed clean enough. It ended up being a piece of wood that someone had tracked in on their shoe. Gross. Prior to welcoming our son into our lives, my husband and I were pretty serious about entertaining, or at least I was. I'm the kind of person who frets over invitation designs and has an unhealthy amount of glassware. You never know when you'll have another sushi party for 15 guests and want 20 wooden chopsticks and sake glasses. So before he was born, we were always a shoes-on household. Shoes are part of the outfit that you may have thoughtfully planned for that special themed party or holiday event. But now we have a little one who is very mobile and constantly finding choking hazards and nasty things to munch on, so we are a shoeless household. But because we've spent the time baby-proofing, it's much easier for us to do the hosting, as that writer inner had mentioned. That way, I don't have to worry about bringing him somewhere and watching him like a hawk and not enjoying time with my friends because I'm too busy worried about what he may be getting into. So this is the part that caused the face I mentioned earlier. 
Am I really supposed to provide alternative footwear for my guests if I ask them to remove their shoes? It seems a bit cost prohibitive when looking at a guest list of 15 or more individuals all squeezed into our tiny New York City apartment. And for me, it would be quite an investment to get enough slippers that felt stylish enough to offer guests and have the variety of sizes needed to accommodate all my friends' different feet. Where would I even store them when I wasn't using them? Storage space in New York City is an especially tricky thing. I already have enough of a storage issue created by my infatuation with entertaining wear. Uh, it goes well beyond the 20 sake glasses I mentioned. I would be very reticent to expect a host to do this no matter what the size of the guest list. I think that if you're going to ask your guests to remove their shoes, you should let them know ahead of time on the invitation. No one wants to get caught wearing their holy socks. And in the spirit of keeping the floor clean, which is the purpose of having a shoe-free home, you need to commit to having a clean floor in the first place. That way guests know that the bottom of their feet or socks won't be covered in pet hair or grime when they leave. When we hosted our first post-baby bash, we let guests know that we'd become a shoeless household on the invite and asked them to plan accordingly. There weren't any grumbles that I was made aware of, at least. Anyway, I just wanted to give another perspective on the issue from someone with a tiny one who will eat literally anything they find on the floor, which is all tiny ones. Love the podcast and how much consideration, respect, and honesty you guys bring into my life every week. Thanks. So I got to tell you that I actually had the pleasure of getting to talk to Maya on the phone. Her original message was cut off halfway. And I was like, I know I want to hear everything she has to say. And she very graciously accepted my phone call. And we talked for a little bit. And um, she's delightful. And she sounds like an incredible host. So um, Maya, I just want to say thank you so much for sending your feedback back into us. I loved your comment about if you're going to ask for a shoes-free household that you keep your floors clean. Seconded. Yeah, and I've got to say, you. I wish we had live-streamed Dan listening to this question because he was nodding and agreeing, like, yeah, how would you? What, what, oh, that's a good thought. Arms I mean, like, folded, yeah. sit back in my chair, just appreciate the, the thought and consideration. <laughs> I picture the two of you having a glass of wine discussing home entertaining totally. Um, but what I love about Maya's thoughts is that they get to some of the caveat situations that are the exact reason that we created step number five in our five-step method that you've heard us go through on the show. You know, another listener had actually tweeted in some thoughts about how gross it sounded to have communal slippers. And I realized we needed to give some follow-up on this particular piece of advice for dealing with this basket of slippers I had mentioned. Some refinement. <laughs> Little refinement needed. Step five. Here you go. I definitely did not mean to imply that everyone should have like 50 pairs of slippers in various styles and sizes and things like that. Um, you Most of the time that I have encountered this it's very much so like at a um, at a salon uh, where you're asked to remove your shoes and, and put on a little pair of washable cotton slippers you know they come in like a 10 pack you can get them for like 14.99 to like 35.99 on Amazon or a similar type site these are washable they're throwaway they're not supposed to be I mean maybe I wouldn't be throwing them away because I keep everything but I would say that this is supposed to be lightweight this is not supposed to be those awesome LL Bean slippers that are like fuzzy and amazing and warm all the time. And if you're in a warmer climate, you might not want that. But I do think it's important to recognize that we aren't we aren't saying that you need to stack for every party or if you hosted a wedding at your home that you would provide slippers. My thought 
is that if you're going to have a party where you're really having, you know, uh, 20, 30, 40 people show up to your house, that um, you would let folks know when they RSVP, hey, our house is an indoor shoes only house or our house is a shoes off house. So if you want to bring a pair of your own slippers or a pair of indoor shoes that are clean, uh, we would greatly appreciate it and just leave your outdoor shoes at the door. Um, That's a simple thing to communicate, but you communicate it during the RSVP. You don't communicate it on your invitation, just like that that last invitation that we talked about to the shower. You don't communicate this via your um, via your actual invite. This is an RSVP follow up conversation. I also would say that um, there's another option here that a friend of mine uses and. Take it or leave it. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't work for you, no problem. We're not saying this is the only way you can go. But she keeps those little sanitizing wipes at the door. And she just asks people if they come in and and she doesn't have slippers available or something like that, that they just wipe the bottom of their shoes with that. And that makes her feel better and more confident. If that works for you, go for it. It's another option. Also, you know, you do want these shoes, as their Twitter followers said, like, hey, that sounds really gross. Why wouldn't I just bring my own pair? Sometimes you've in someone's coming over to your house that you either didn't invite or weren't expecting where you didn't have the chance to let them know that you're a shoes off household. And that's what these slippers are for. They're for that situation. So I would really consider purchasing some simple cotton basic fit most sizes. We're not going for glamour here. If you want to go the glamour route and have different styles and, you know, styles that are more uh, in one category than another. I don't even want to say more gender this way, gender that way. Just if you want want to put some variety in there, go for it. If you don't, don't worry about it. The point is that as a host, it's your job to be communicating to your guests that you're a shoes off household. And I want to make sure I said that right. Shoes off household. And that they should feel prepared to either bring their own shoes that are clean to wear indoors or to borrow a pair of your slippers that you provide. Again, not massive amounts, not like incredibly amazing slippers, just something basic that gets the job done. I want to second my cousin's (laughs) thanks for taking the time to leave that full message because it really was a, a pleasure and a treat to listen to. And I also want to thank my cousin Lizzie for taking the time to chase that one down. We have one more thought on this, though. If you are going to throw a really large party, a really large, like I'm talking really a lot of people are going to be maybe coming and going, open house, that kind of thing. I would consider letting your house be a shoes on household and then cleaning after the party. It's an option. It's absolutely an option, especially if um, the party is going to take place during hours when baby or young children are more likely to be asleep and not engaging and running around and being at the party, too. If this is like an adults only event. Um, I would consider just letting it be a shoes-on event and then cleaning your floors afterwards because you're probably going to clean them after a big party anyway, right? Am I crazy? Is that crazy? Father of a young child who's going to be crawling on the floor very soon. Does that sound not right? No, I like the options. Okay. And okay. I like the flexibility you're showing as a host, Your care, the care you're showing with your guests. And I want to leave it there <laughs> with a great big thanks again to Maya. And also um, I want to wish her the best of luck finding a place to keep those sake glasses and chopsticks and chopstick holders because that can be really tough when there's not a space in the silverware drawer. Thank you, Maya, for sending in your feedback. Thank you to our Twitter follower who also sent in feedback about this question. We were so grateful for the opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into it. And please keep your feedback coming. It makes this show so much better. So you can send your comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463.
It's time for our Postscript segment, where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And for today's Postscript, we're indulging in a little tale from the Emily Post biography. Emily Post, daughter of the Gilded Age, Mistress of American Manners by Laura Claridge, which we dug back up for our visit with our genealogically inclined friend the other day. This particular section is at the start of Chapter 7, pages 38 and 39, and it tells a story about the Vanderbilt family and the Astor family, and how a change of address and a large housewarming party, more like a ball, led to some old-school put-them-in-their-place etiquette, for lack of a better phrase. (laughs) I know. It is kind of put-them-in-their-place etiquette, though. Lizzie came across this story, and she mentioned it to me, and I said, absolutely, I remember that story, because it's one of the ones that definitely jumps out when you read the book. It's it's, uh, straight from that age of innocence. Since Edith Wharton era. <laughs> this reminded me of a question that we addressed on a previous show about sending an at-home card when a new couple was newly married and at their new home to let people know where to most easily reach them. And this isn't exactly the same situation, but there are shades and reflections of that question in this particular story. Laura Claridge drops us straight into the story, just so you know you're not missing anything from before. This is This is the start of the story, and it begins... From the size of her new ballroom, said to hold 1,000 guests, to the party favors Alva would furnish, Tiffany bracelets and silver lockets transported on a giant gondola rolled into the room, this dance was in no way an exercise in good taste. The housewarming for the Vanderbilt's opulent new limestone mansion at what was then 665th Avenue took the form of a March costume ball that would eclipse the most fabulous events of the season to come. More important, the blatant confrontation between old and new would ante up the social stakes. This was no gracious dance in Southern style, in spite of Alva Vanderbilt's Alabama roots. It was an aggressive tango telling old society New York that the game was over. Now the arrivists not only belonged in Manhattan, they owned a large portion of it. When she was informed of the upcoming Vanderbilt Ball, so the myth's most popular version goes, the redoubtable Caroline Shermerhorn Astor had immediately doubled up on dance lessons for her marriageable daughter, Carrie. Even the jaded Mrs. Astor couldn't help getting excited about the Vanderbilt Gala. Its magnitude promised to be beyond anything even she had sponsored. Whatever the reason, she failed to notice that the Vanderbilts had not invited her family to their ball. Then she began to hear alarming rumors. Mrs. Vanderbilt was not expecting the Astor's daughter or her parents to attend. Prodded by her worried daughter, Mrs. Astor sent out a polite, if typically haughty, query about the missing invitation. Mere days before the dance. She was immediately and reluctantly informed that the presumably misplaced invitation to the ball was in fact not lost at all. Mrs. Vanderbilt was not so uncouth as to invite someone who had not yet called on her. Mrs. Astor had never dropped her pasteboard or calling card at 665th Avenue, so of course Mrs. Vanderbilt couldn't expect her to attend the party. The story, retold with relish in certain quarters even today, surely embellishes the inward turmoil purported to have kept Mrs. Astor tossing in her bed over the next few nights. Smoldering purple with rage for several days, the defeated queen of society at last angrily acquiesced. 
Neighbors peeking through their curtains saw a footman in the blue livery of the House of Astor deliver Caroline's calling card. Mrs. Astor was engraved on it even more simply than were most socialites' names to the maroon-liveried footman guarding the Vanderbilt's gates. The victor purportedly bestowed a wicked smile of thanks upon her servant. That afternoon, the outmaneuvered Mrs. Astor received her invitation to the ball. Spectacular. Isn't that a delicious story? I mean, just... You think about what we did before Facebook and Twitter and everything took up our attention and the Internet became our binge-worthy life fest. We we worried about what other people were up to all the time. <laughs> I love that story, though. I think it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating old and new, yet trading on old etiquette as a reason to not invite someone to your very ostentatious party. It was a, I think it's a fabulous story. Right or wrong, who, whosever side you come down on, it is delicious. Delicious bit of gossip. (laughs) If you would like more stories like that, please pick up a copy of Emily Post, Daughter of the Gilded Age, Mistress of American Manners by Laura Claridge. It is a fabulous read. There is tons of good etiquette afoot in it everywhere. (laughs) We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. Today's salute comes from Kate, who reminds us that etiquette can be seen in all ages. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I was listening to this week's podcast, and the mention of offering an arm to someone you're walking with reminded me of a lovely encounter I recently had. I work at a high school, and several weeks ago, I slipped on a patch of ice and broke my foot. A few days ago, after the big storm that hit the northeast, I was walking down some slippery steps with a little hesitation because my broken foot is still in a boot. A high school senior walking behind me quickly jumped in to steady me as I made it down the stairs and escorted me to my final destination, making sure I didn't slip. It was a small gesture, but thoughtful and kind and truly appreciated. Best, Kate. Isn't that lovely? It really is. My mother, Cindy Sanning, says we always hear about all the terrible things that teens do and just how difficult teenagers can be. And it's just not always true. Teens are spectacular people. They do amazing things. Thank you, Kate, for reminding us about all the good-mannered young people there are out in the world. We find that getting along with people is pretty important. Do you think you can do that? Oh, yes, I think I can. much for listening and thank you to everyone who sent us something you can send us questions comments and salutes by email to awesome etiquette at emilypost.com or by phone you can leave us a message at 802-858-KIND that's 802-858-5463 on twitter i'm at lizzie a post and i'm at daniel underscore post and on facebook we're awesome etiquette and the emily post institute and please help us out subscribe to your favorite podcast app and leave us a review we would love to hear from you our show is edited by Chris Albertine, and our awesome etiquette intern is Michaela Varanach. 